Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Matthew Booker, the Center's Vice President for Scholarly Programs. It's my pleasure to introduce this special series of Discovery and Inspiration episodes. Each year, the National Humanities Center welcomes up to 40 scholars from across the United States and abroad who spend their time working on scholarly projects to enhance our understanding of the human experience. Our usual Discovery and Inspiration podcasts are recorded during their year at the Center as they are immersed in the research and writing process. These special episodes of the Discovery and Inspiration podcasts, however, feature National Humanities Center fellows discussing their completed projects, which have now been published. These conversations were part of the Center's virtual book talk series in 2020, 21, and 2022, which were recorded originally on YouTube with a live online audience. I hope you will enjoy this fascinating conversation with one of our amazing scholars as they share insights into what their research reveals about the world we share. Welcome to this evening's installment of the National Humanities Center's Virtual Book Club. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this evening's event. I wanna thank you all for joining us tonight for the last of six installments in what has been a fascinating series of conversations. If you missed any of our previous events this spring, I encourage you to go to the events page on the Center's website, nationalhumanitycenter.org, to watch them. I want to begin uh, this evening's session, as I've begun all sessions, with a poem. And I want to invoke the wonderful nature poet Mary Oliver and her poem entitled Wild Geese. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert, repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, the world goes on. Meanwhile, the sun and the clear pebbles of the rain are moving across the landscapes over the prairies and the deep trees, the mountains and the rivers. Meanwhile, the wild geese high in the clean blue air are heading home again. Whoever you are, no matter how lonely, the world offers itself to your imagination, calls to you like the wild geese, harsh and exciting, over and over, announcing your place in the family of things. Now, let me share a little bit about our guests. Annette Gordon-Reed is the Charles Warren Professor of American Legal History at Harvard Law School and a professor of history in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences at Harvard University. She has published six books, including The Heavenses of Monticello, an American Family, which won numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize in History and the National Book Award for Nonfiction. In recognition of her considerable achievements, Professor Gordon-Reed received the National Humanities Medal and a MacArthur Fellowship in 2010, and she was elected a Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2011. Since 2018, she has served as a trustee of the National Humanities Center. Peter S. Onuf is the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Virginia and a Senior Research Fellow at the Robert H. Smith International Center for Jefferson Studies at Monticello. He was one of the founding co-hosts of the public radio program, Backstory with the American History Guys. And he was elected to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 2014. Peter has published a dozen books, including several that explore Thomas Jefferson's political thought, among them Jefferson's Empire, the Language of, Amer of American Nationhood, and The Mind of Thomas Jefferson. In 2016, Peter and Annette co-authored the book they're going to discuss with us this, this evening, Most Blessed of Patriarchs, Thomas Jefferson, and the Empire of Imagination. And it's my pleasure to welcome the two of them this evening, Peter and Annette. 
good to be here. Thank you, Robert. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here and to be here at least virtually with my good friend and co-author, Annette Gordon-Reed. And we thought we'd start tonight just about like talking about our collaboration for a few minutes before we dive with you into the heart and soul of Thomas Jefferson, our subject. And maybe a good place to begin would be to talk about the title of the book and then why are we do? Why did we do it in the first place? Maybe that's the best. Uh, okay. Yeah. Why do we do this thing? This, well, this I know thing. why I did it. And <laughs> why did you do it? Well, I did it because uh, you asked me if I would do it. And the, the reason, and you disclosed this in strictest confidence, but I'll share it with our audience tonight, that you were afraid as an old guy uh, going out to pasture that I wouldn't do anything anymore. And this was a humane gesture of keeping me uh, in the field, so to speak, uh, as opposed to the pasture. Uh, so that uh, this collaboration, and to be less flippant, uh, though I, I take that because this has been a wonderful experience for me. Um, but the idea of writing a biography of, of Jefferson was not something that would have come to mind. I don't think of myself as a biographer. Why yeah. did you no, think? <laughs> Well, I mean, I know that you have a range. I figured that you would have a range and we could do this together. No, it's, uh -huh. it's no, I, those things were true. I did, you were retiring and I thought that, you know, you should have something to do that you shouldn't just go out to pasture. And so I thought that this would be preparation for me to do a bigger biography of Jefferson, which I intend to do. And yeah. you write about the intellectual side of Jefferson. I've read parts of that myself, and I do more the, the per private life, social parts of Jefferson's life and politics, and you do some of that as well. It seemed to me a good thing to have two people who looked at this subject from different perspectives come together and collaborate, and so that's why we decided to do it, and we cast about for a title. I mean, titles are always tough, and that's always the thing that How I was think of. A new Thomas life. Jefferson, a new life, a new life, one of the, for the 20,000th time. Um, no, we wanted to do a book about Jefferson that would be different. I mean, so much of, it's almost like a rote recitation to talk about how uh, inscrutable he is, uh, that you can't really know him and that he doesn't make any sense. And it, you always talk about him in terms of, of contradictions. And we thought that he was a pretty coherent person. Um, that he had a coherent philosophy. If you paid attention to chronology, if you didn't take something that happened in 1787 as a justification for something he said in 1820, um, if you really followed along closely, you could figure this person out. And we cast about for titles. And I think it was Peter who suggested initially that we take a phrase from a letter that he wrote to Angelica Church um, in, after he is retiring from Washington's cabinet and he's going home to Monticello to lick his wounds and take his marbles and go home after having been bested in the cabinet battles by Alexander Hamilton. And he writes to her and he's telling her what he's gonna do. And then he talks about having his fields to form and to watch for the happiness of those who labor for mine, that is to say enslaved people. And mm -hmm he says, my daughters are near me and I'm going back to my farm. And if everything works out the way I expect it to do, I will consider myself to be as blessed as the most blessed of the patriarchs. And mm. Peter thought that that is a very picturesque kind of way to put it, most blessed of the patriarchs. Here's a guy who's seen as the apostle of liberty, who is forward thinking, who is, you know, all for science and progress. And he's talking about himself in these terms of some ancient figure. And we thought, what's that all about? And that was sort of an invitation to begin to think about the inner life of Jefferson, to try to put him together, the public and the private, to come up with a coherent portrait of him. And so that's what we, we wanted to do. I mean, our editor did not, and the, our publishers were not thrilled by the idea of patriarch because they thought it would immediately conjure up, as I said, something ancient. And I didn't like 
the fact that they didn't want to put quotation marks. They didn't want it to be a Jefferson quote. They said, you don't put quotations on the cover of books. At the same time, I didn't want to be seen saying Jefferson was the most blessed of the patriarchs. That's not me saying that, an African-American woman or Peter, uh, the liberal New England guy. We're not going to say most blessed of the patriarchs. That's who this person is. That's what he described himself. And so that's, we wanted to think, what did he mean by that? And why was that important for him to say? So that's how we came up with this somewhat unusual title, something that a, a self-description of a person that gave us a way into thinking about him. Yeah, be, be, before we talk more about patriarchy and why that antique or archaic word works for us, why do you think it took us to write the really great biography? Just joking. Why? <laughs> why? Those other 19,000 people. people. Why they were all wrong? Yeah, why they're all wrong. I mean, what is it? <laughs> I mean, it's a serious well, question. I, that is, why Why do people call him inscrutable? What, what is? It, it almost seems perversely willful for somebody who leaves uh, thousands and thousands of letters. Don't, we know a lot about this guy. We know a lot about him, and well, the, for a biographer, you're never—you have to realize that we're never going to really know a hundred percent the whole person. But you can kind of get there. You can get a coherent understanding of who this person was. I think people enjoy it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people enjoy presenting him as this mystery. You know, we don't. It's right. like you know, it's like conspiracy theories. Why do people think that you know nineteen thousand people could keep a secret? You know, it's like, no, no, it doesn't work. You, you can't, you know, there's not some, uh, you know, magic thing that's happening here. And I, I, I think they like to see him that way because we do the paradox thing, you know, on one hand, he owns slaves. And on the other hand, mm-hmm. he wrote the Declaration of Independence and blah, 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 as if people don't have warring ideas that I don't, you know, we, all of us, we have intellectual beliefs that don't coincide with what we do all the time. I mean, life would be very, very different if everybody did what they knew to be right, Uh, but we don't. And the question is, why don't they? Uh, What are the kinds of forces that competing forces are they contending with that make them not as coherent or seem to be hypocritical? And so Mm -hmm. I, I think there's a certain pleasure in that. Um, for the same reason people keep giving Sally Hemings, you know, new fathers to her children, because it's a mystery that people don't want to let go of. And they can't just go with what makes the most sense, what the evidence suggests. It has mm-hmm. to be, oh, I want to I want to argue about this some more. I got a letter today from somebody, you know, who, who was doing that, that kind of thing. It's like, you know, why? But you don't want to let go of that because you don't want to let go of the story of Jefferson as this mystery man. Well, it's not just I mean, a so mystery. I He's, yeah, I think, it's a, I think that's a lot of the answer. But it, the, it's also that people expect so much of him and they expect different things. So yeah, uh, that's the very idea that he's a, a renaissance man, he, he does everything. But he can be the hero uh, to George Will, the man of the millennium. He can be a hero to radical Democrats. Uh, he, he seems elusive. And the word, the default word that just inevitably comes up with the author of the Declaration of Independence who owns slaves is he's just got to be a hypocrite. Yeah, yeah. And so, and, and, yeah. yeah and that, remember, that, that's one of the things we said. We wanted to banish that. We want that that word out of here because yeah. it's, it, it, it's born of an expectation of a person that expectations that are just too too high. They, right. they don't so make let, any sense in the context of thinking about a, an individual, actual person, not a demigod, an actual homo sapien. Yeah. So let's let's warn our, our listeners, our auditors, while well, they're watching us, I guess, uh, that they may not ask questions about hypocrisy. Uh, otherwise, <laughs> fair game for everything. Well, let's talk about patriarchy for a little bit. It, 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 it is a strange term, uh, but what it signals, I think, for us is that a good coherent answer or picture of Jefferson has to begin at home. He's referring to his family, of course, as a patriarch. He's referring to his place. Uh, He's escaping, as you suggested, from the torment of politics into the loving bosom of his family. 
And it's there, I think, that we really have uh, begun to uncover what Jefferson's all about. He tells us that family is important. Is family just an escape from the hurly-burly of the world? Is he really just a very private man? Does that make any sense for a person who, how many years was he in a in his public career? Oh, a huge amount. I mean, you know, yeah. from, from his 20s, you know, if you start with the Burgesses and all of those kinds of things, the local right. in, involvement. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a tough, it was, must have been a tough thing for him, but it was also something that he actually needed. I mean, on one hand, he's thinking, as you suggest, that the family is a refuge, but he has this desire, ambition, Mm-hmm. to be a person, a figure in the world, a person who moves and shakes things. And we talk a little bit about in the book about what is really preoccupying Jefferson so much is the revolution. That was right. the creation of the United States of America is what obsessed him. I mean, he wasn't obsessed with race. He wasn't obsessed with slavery. He wasn't obsessed with you know the status of women. He was obsessed with the idea of this country that mm-hmm. he had helped to create and the vanquishing of monarchy. So on one hand, he has this place that he loves to be, but he recognizes himself as a figure on the world stage, and he can't let go of that. I mean, certainly after, after the Declaration, after the, well, after the Revolution, he's not gonna let go of public life. There's no question that he loved to be at Monticello, and he loved his family being in that, that setting, but he was a man of, he thought, of, of destiny, and he wasn't going to walk away from that. So, so what did he think the revolution was going to do for, for him, for his family, for Virginia, for the world? Uh, let me just offer a deflationary comment about the revolution. It was a okay. familiar <laughs> thing for Americans. It was a tax <laughs> revolt. It was uh, a tax revolt. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, these were, and who were these people who were revolting against taxation? Well, they were colonizers. They were building colonies. They were building plantations. They were uh, exploiting enslaved people. They were pressing Indians into the backcountry. And they were producing goods for European markets. And uh, it was, as uh, Benjamin Franklin said, the best poor man's country in the world. It was the what a great place to be. So uh, what was it that a provincial person, and let's face it, Thomas Jefferson comes from back of nowhere. He is a knockoff Briton on the wrong side of the ocean. He's tremendously ambitious. He's got great aspirations. What does he think the revolution is going to do? Well, it's going to transform the world. I mean, he was the person, if you think about American exceptionalism, he was, may have been the first person to articulate that, that idea of America as a place that would be a beacon to the world. And you're right, it's sort of a strange thing to think. If you look around and you see a person who's in a wilderness, a person who is a part of a society that is enslaving people and involved in this, you know, a, you know, contentions, contentious relations mm-hmm. with indigenous people. But I think he thought America was the beginning of something, uh, that this was an enlightenment project. And that's something that we kind of don't take seriously um, today, uh, as seriously as he did, but he was enthusiastic about that. And he thought that, that this, was a, this was a step in progress. This wasn't the end, this was just the beginning of something. And so, Uh, He could be quite idealistic about something that we look at now and say, wait a minute, but what about this? What about, (laughs) what about, what about this carnage around you? That that might be a good thing to talk about for just a minute. You mentioned monarchy as the great problem is that the Declaration of Independence is an indictment, a bill of indictment against George III. Uh, A lot of disappointment. You let us down, George. Uh, You were not (laughs) the good king, the patriot king we imagined you to be, because a good uh, British monarch is supposedly a, the super patriot and he, 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 it's rule of law and people are able to carry on in their lives. But Jefferson is obsessed with, uh, with unearned, privileged power, mm-hmm. aristocracy, monarchy. 
uh, domination of the well-born. Because by definition, nobody in Anglo-America is well-born. Uh, they're middling people. Well, they thought they were. <laughs> yeah, they, especially in Virginia, they take their first families very seriously. Yeah, they thought they were aristocrats of a sort. Yeah. Yeah. But I know I get your point, but I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think what you're getting at and the big point, and I like to use the image of, of, uh, of social order is vertical. Mm -hmm. uh, and in a hierarchical society with the king at the top and the various social orders taking you down to the humblest and the lowest, uh, that's a conception of society that's built on an order, a hierarchical order. Jefferson is a Republican with a small R. It doesn't mean he's not enlightened and ambitious. He does, he's very hardworking. Uh, but he believes in the idea that all, and this I think where the word patriarch comes in, all the fathers of all the families should meet each other on the basis of equality. This is the great, the great insight of the revolutionary generation is that we don't have to have that order. We don't need hierarchy. We can have that natural attraction to each other. Society, as Thomas Paine said, is, is uh, is natural to people. Government is artificial. And mm -hmm. this idea of a society that's liberated from monarchy and aristocracy, it's a compelling and powerful idea. It's what we now call democracy, though we don't know what it is. But that idea that somehow it's ours, we own it, mm -hmm. uh, and, and we're part of it. In a way, sovereignty is us. Yeah. We don't defer to a sovereign. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah, well, that seems uh, for us, as you su were suggesting, so, well, either banal, obvious, or it doesn't mean anything. Well, of course it would be, because, you know, with kings and queens and all of that kind of stuff, you know, we like to watch Downton Abbey and all those kinds of things, almost like a fairy tale, you know, Princess Diana or whatever, but we don't really take monarchy seriously as a form, but for him, I mean, you know, to have grown up in a monarchy, to be in a world where monarchy was the order of the day, to vanquish that, to get rid of that was a big deal. And you're right, we don't take that seriously. Who, who would have thought that, you know, kings were serious? Uh, but, but they were um, uh, serious. And to have a different form of government, a republic, that was supposed to be based upon uh, destroying that kind of an aristocratic hierarchy, was something that he thought was an achievement. He made a big deal of it. Now we can see all the ways that it was limited. I mean, there's an, uh, there was a discussion um, a month or so ago uh, that I had with people on Twitter about what would be different if we were to talk about what was created was not a republic, but an aristocracy of white men. Mm. How, how would history be written if we thought of it in those terms? Because what we're really doing is freeing up, get rid of the Brits, and we right. free up the country to be run by white guys, by white men. And mm -hmm. without, obviously, enslaved people would not be a part of that, and women wouldn't be a part of that. But we think about that differently if you, if you change the name of what it was that was created. But for him, he wouldn't have questioned the notion of male rule, obviously. That, that would have given. been natural. Yeah. That was a given. That was a given. And enslaved people... That's a tough, tough question. They had to go somewhere else and have their country and meet, you know, there we could meet on some sort of plane of equality, but, but that's, he never had a solution to that. But we look at this and I, I think rightfully so, obviously we don't just accept everything that he says about all of this, but for him, this was a big achievement. It was a signal achievement. And that, that, that was his obsession. Um, for the rest of his life. What are we going to do about the United States? How do we preserve the United States of America? And that those questions about slavery, all those things, they will work themselves out in the fullness of time. And of course, we know that's not what happened, but that was his expectation. Well, now Jefferson didn't think that Virginia was a perfect commonwealth. Get rid of the king and Virginians are just fine. No. Um, how would you describe old regime Virginia? You describe think, old regime. For, you think you, I you should describe do that? old okay. regime? Well, yes, I think uh, you should. 
All right. Well, I'll start. I'm getting into trouble enough here, making all these pronouncements. You get into you get into some trouble. <laughs> oh, you do it beautifully. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, uh, old regime. Uh, that, that's an interesting uh, way to put it. Old regime, because of course Jefferson would tell you that the old regime's on the other side of the ocean. Yeah. Uh, that's where monarchy lives. That's where aristocracy flourishes. But Jefferson actually is uh, uh, is uh, deeply upset with provincial Virginia. He's concerned uh, about its imperfections. It is a backwater province. It's not characterized by a lot of enlightened farmers. It is a slave society. He knows this. He's concerned about, uh, when he talks about slavery, for instance, he's talking, he, he's concerned about what young planters' children learn by watching slavery being performed. He says, this is a, a world of petty despots, of tyrants, of, of people who learn mastery, and mastery is a way of life. These are people who uh, uh, have wonderful opportunities because this is a rich and prosperous land, but we're squandering it in speculation and in, uh, uh, in, in there's so many corrupt things about Virginia. Everybody wants to be a, 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 a to get some advantage or to be to be connected with the crown to get land grants. It's a it's a, a, a sordid scramble for wealth and advantage. Mm -hmm. So it's in many ways, it's Jefferson. I think is dissatisfied with his own class or his misgivings yes. about his own class, and he invests a tremendous amount in ordinary white farmers. I like to say that Jefferson has Pennsylvania envy. He looks <laughs> north of the Mason-Dixon line. He sees family farms that produce food, not tobacco. Uh, it's wheat. And it's that kind of wholesome uh, society. This is what America could be. And that's one of the reasons why he fantasizes about Virginia without slavery. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, Pennsylvania envy. New England envy, places where, and I think even Malone, his great biographer said that one of the things that he liked about being in France was that he could sort of live the life that he lived you know, with servants, with people mm -hmm. without slavery. So he's That's fantasizing right. and in fantasizing again, you know, of doing without slavery, he's also fantasizing doing without black people, obviously because you know, slavery was racially, racially based. Um, yeah, I mean, he's dissatisfied with, with Virginia, and even after the revolution, he, does, he wonders whether or not they're up to things. We began our book, in the, the, one of the, the start of the book is talking about his response to a letter that his granddaughter, Ellen, writes when she travels right. up to Massachusetts to be with her husband. She's married a man from New England, and she's talking about you know, my God, they have nice roads. There are these wonderful inns that you can stop in and, and you know, they're all clean. There are schools, these tidy villages, all this kind of stuff. And look at what we have in Virginia, essentially. And he basically, and she identifies slavery as the reason why the society is backwards. And he says, yes, I mean, that's, that's what it is. If things had been different, you know, we could have societies like that as well. So it's, you know, he understands that, that there are these things that he wants to do, but at, at the same time, he is insecure about the capacity of his people, you know, his people, that is right. to say Virginians, his countrymen, to actually pull this off. And then this plays into the university and all the things that he hopes to have happen with that. But that ambition is there, but he's born in a place where the people around him you know, to him, don't seem to be, aren't, it's not clear that they're up to snuff. Um, and that's clear to him before he goes to France. It's in those years when he's in Virginia, uh, when he's the governor, he's in the assembly, when in 1779, he, he uh, drafts a comprehensive revisal of the laws. This is the great reform moment for Jefferson getting rid of aristocratic privilege entail in primogeniture, establishing an education system as one of his dreams, mm -hmm. root out aristocracy, educate the people, 
will have a popular democratic enlightenment. And that's a radical idea because the enlightenment is, a, is a, not a popular movement. It doesn't come from below. It, mm-hmm. it, uh, it comes from the aristocrats and from the privileged. From the elite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot that he'd like to have done in Virginia because this is as if it were clay that could be molded into a, a, a perfect vessel, a perfect commonwealth. Um, but he goes to Paris. And I think this is in some ways the major pivot of our understanding of Jefferson is what does America look like to Jefferson when he looks back across the ocean? And we remember that he's the frustrated reformer when he's in Virginia. He's uh, has a disastrous uh, gubernatorial career. He's uh, uh, facing an investigation by his uh, his uh, fellow, by his Virginia legislature looking into his performance. Virginia proves to be a frail reed when the British invade, and there's no there there. Uh, where is all that? Where is that patriotic people? Where where is the great strength of the republic? There's nothing. It's not there. Mm-hmm. What happens? Why do things look so different to him? when he gets to Paris? Well, there are lots of conflicting things on one hand. One thing that looks different, I mean, he is impressed, obviously, by the sophistication of the society, uh, the music, the architecture, all those kinds of things. But the same th- at the same time, that sophistication repels him um, because he begins to see families, the, fa- the form of the family in France frightens him, to wit, women, out in the streets, as he says, going around talking politics, being involved in all kinds of things. And he's, he's frightened by that. It's, that's, it's a real, you know, he likes the, the culture, the, 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 as I said, art, music, all those kinds of things. But he begins to look back at it and he says, you know, we have good things in Virginia too. You know, we, you know, we have family. We may not have high art. We may not play music as well as they do, classical music and so forth. But our families are wholesome. And yeah, well, that's what a, he begins to think about. You know, the, the sort of, he sees them as decadent. This is, and it is sort of, I mean, this is pre-revolutionary France. It doesn't get as out there, <laughs> more out there than it was then in terms of, you know, people having affairs, all kinds of things. So mm-hmm. he's, he begins to see some good things in Virginia. That he might be able you to say work he's, with. Fr- he's he's anxious. He's frightened. He's frightened of what? That he 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 will lose his virtue. <laughs> yes, uh, that he will lose his virtue. That young men coming. What are you going to do? Leave the young men out of out of. Uh, don't let them come to France because they'll their heads will be turned around and they'll you know turn into uh, wastrels or whatever. So it, it's it's not an a untypical kind of thing when people see themselves as well, inferior in a way intimidated and said, well, we may not have all those things, but we have spirit. You know, we have the natural, mm-hmm. we're naturally uh, good people. And uh, that, so it reinforces, he's mad at Virginia when he goes over, but when he looks back from France, he's saying, no, you know, it's not so bad. We have mm-hmm. some good things to build on. And, you know, it changes his attitude about slavery. Um, mm-hmm. It changes Lots of so. Why does it uh, change his attitude about slavery? Well, I mean, he begins to instead of being a person who, well, while he's there, he starts thinking of a lot of schemes to end slavery, uh, bringing Germans over and mixing them with enslaved people, and then they all become great citizens at the end. Doesn't ever follow up on that, but he says, you know, France has lived all this long time, and they've had this problem with peasants people who are starving. They haven't, as I said, they're on the brink of revolution there. So we have a chance to do something about slavery, but it doesn't have to be done now. He right. begins to think about ways to ameliorate, to make slavery better, to make it okay. And of course, once he does that, then he's pretty much lost, right? I mean. Yes, <laughs> that's, the, <laughs> that's the short story of the long, sad story that follows. And that's right. Uh, so when he looks back, things look better and the family looks important. And this gets to a major theme of our book and the way we thought about Jefferson. 
And that is his idealization of the family is despite the fact that he doesn't have one. Yes, the that's family, the interesting thing about it. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so when he returns to Monticello, he's not returning to a nuclear family, but that's the ideal form for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, so instead, he, he recruits his daughters, mm-hmm. or at least one of his daughters, I would have recruited both if he could have, mm-hmm. to, he wants to attract people to Monticello. He has this idealized version of a life he could build for himself there. Uh, in which uh, he, he wants Monroe and Madison to live in the neighborhood. Uh, he, he thinks this could be a, 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 a marvelous way to have the best of both worlds, uh, to bring European high civilization to America. And what bothers many Americans on the eve of the revolution is that it is a middling, boring uh, world in which there isn't great wealth, and so therefore there isn't high civilization, um, and there's a lot of anxiety about well, how could we ever match up to the metropolis? How could we ever become more like England because that's our our model, and this idea that somehow our vices become our virtues—that is mm-hmm. the the broadly equal distribution of wealth. Mm-hmm. Well, that means that unlike France, where 19 out of 20 people have nothing, uh, even if you include the enslaved people, you've got a majority of people who are more or less independent, who have therefore some agency who can participate in government. It's this notion of an educable public and maybe the most important thing, and you said this before about independence being the crucial thing for him, the revolution is the great defining moment of his life, is the mobilization of liberty-loving people to defend their rights against tyranny. That shows the enormous possibilities in the mass of the people. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of education through military and political mobilization, mm-hmm. it is the way toward enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's tapping into the, what he sees and imagines as this upwelling of popular power. And maybe that goes back to the way he imagines the Declaration of Independence being written. Mm-hmm. You know how modest he is about it? Yeah. What me, I didn't write the Declaration I didn't of write it. Yeah. No. It was uh, like Shirley MacLaine. I was channeling <laughs> the American people. The American people. Yes, and they and uh, I, I was just the pen that came to hand, mm-hmm. and through me. Mm-hmm. But this and what that on the face of it sounds, of course, uh, uh, megalomaniac. That is, I am America. <laughs> Jefferson has been confused with America. Mm-hmm. But I think he's on to something really important, and it's something that I think we've been nostalgic about ever since, is at least in his view, and historians will challenge this view, but in his view, um, the revolution is this wondrous mobilization of the people. But it's a movement. It's people coming together, uh, dedicated, to, uh, dedicated to liberty, to preserving their farms and plantations, to protecting their families, mm-hmm. uh, and this idea of a movement, of a of a of a patriotic politics that brings people together, mm-hmm. uh, in many ways, I think uh, it, it it connects with with what Scottish Enlightenment philosophers are are telling Jefferson about the moral sense, about the capacity of ordinary people to. Yeah rise to the occasion yeah. and that's I mean, it's a, no, I just, it's it's so it's something you were saying there that is key and i wanted to bring it back to thinking about what well many things you said there are key but about the book and that is this notion that we wanted to try to get away from well we see what you're doing jefferson and we don't trust you or we don't believe you right. wanted to write the book from the perspective of what is this person thinking I mean, what is, what did he think he was doing? Not what we think, 
he ought to have been doing because there are plenty of things, obviously, that I think he ought to have been doing. But as a biographer, or you know, I don't want to include, include you in this, as people, <laughs> his, whatever it is that we're doing here together with this, is to think about what he thought he was doing. And all the things that you're saying there are his ideas, that we can sort of discern what his ideas are by the things that he's saying and by the things that he's doing. And it's writing a biography is, is sure, there's commentary about what the person is doing and the way you present the material very often. But it's really for us, I mean, well, for both of us, was to try to figure, to take him at his word whenever it was possible to do. I mean, sometimes you can't do that, but for the most part, not to be in this constant interrogation saying, well, he said this, but he really didn't mean it. And I know that he didn't mean it because I don't think it makes any sense, which is not the way to think about other people's thoughts, right? Because it doesn't make sense to you. That's not what you would do. Now that obviously means that he didn't, he didn't take this seriously. You know, he took all of this stuff seriously. I mean, even crazy stuff, you know, everybody's going to be a Unitarian one day. I mean, I think well, I he was actually, once. I know. <laughs> <laughs> you were once. Um, you know, these are, for a person who thought that science was important and that, you know, stories, things were unfolding, knowledge was unfolding, he could sort of imagine, as we all often do, one day we will solve this particular problem. And then once the that day comes, or people think it should have come, people look back and think, well, why, why would they have thought that that happened, um, was going to happen? And there was never a chance for it. But in his thinking, having beat, you know, the mo one of the most powerful countries in the world, having helped establish a republic, almost anything was possible. And so that's what he was gonna go for, even if a lot of times it doesn't seem to make sense to us that that could ever well, have been possible. He did have an incredible faith in the people. Uh, and it wasn't just the people. In, in a way, Jefferson helped invent the very idea of the people. That's what the revolution represented, people coming together, mm -hmm. becoming a people. And he imagined that there every generation would be a new people. And that is, would, uh, would then, the earth would belong to the living and each generation would build on the foundations that previous generations had laid down. Mm -hmm. And this central idea, I think, is the one that we do feel some nostalgia for these days is in, in these fractured, polarized uh, days of ours now, where we doubt that we have the capacity to do anything about existential threats to our very existence. Mm -hmm. Well, imagine what it's like to break away from the British Empire in a dangerous world without any hope, without any expectation that there's going to be, well, God would have to be on our side. How else could we possibly triumph? But this idea of the nation or the people, mm -hmm. and this is, I think, what's finally most important about Jefferson. He, he helps us understand the beginnings of national history, that collective mm -hmm. story that we've been writing together that's ours now, and, and we need to know where it started. It, mm -hmm. And it didn't start in a very lovely place. It didn't start with people that we would want to know and live by their standards now. A lot of things have changed. It's a different world. Mm -hmm. But it's that connection that I think is really important. And, yeah. and uh, Jefferson and you, gets us there. Yeah, and you have to, as you're suggesting here, take uh, the bad with the good. Um, you don't really understand that story if you don't add in, you know, indigenous people, slavery, all those kinds of things, the package together helps tell us why we are where we are now. So I'd like to interrupt and, and go to some of the questions that we have. This has been just a, a wonderful conversation, but um, we have a lot of questions that the conversation has spurred. So if I can begin actually uh, with a question about the collaborative writing process. So you engage with each other so well, and the questioner is asking in this collaboration regarding this book, when you disagreed, <laughs> how did you resolve the disagreements? Whose viewpoint won out? Oh, I capitulated. <laughs> oh, oh, come on, I was gonna say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. 
I would just say in passing, uh, we wrote a lot of this book before we started writing it and before we knew we were going to write a book. And uh, I'm reminded now because I'm looking at a screen that's filled with Annette. Uh, mm -hmm. And this is the way we talked about Jefferson for four or five years. Well, more <laughs> than that, really. Uh, yeah. We go back a long time. We didn't know we were going to do this book. Uh, it's, uh, I, I would say, uh, in response to the question, uh, it's incredible how little we disagreed about. Uh, yeah. There were moments. Uh, I came up with this cockamamie idea that Jefferson prayed. And what would I know as a lapsed Unitarian about prayer? Um, but as I was reworking, working through the material, I came up with this idea. And, 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 and that comes from much more serious religious tradition than I do. And she said, you got to be kidding, big guy. So, uh, no, but, but, that's but about he, it. no, but that's, a, that's really about it. And I, I would have to say that I, came over more to your side on that, that I, I think that I was being uh, too provincial in my definition of Christian, Christianity, that people have different understandings about that. And so here was a disagreement where I, I was persuaded that his understanding about Jefferson, Jefferson's understanding about religion was, was right. Uh, we, as he said, we've I've, we've known each other in 1995. We met and we've been sort of in a constant conversation about Jefferson over the years. Uh, when we actually sat down to write, you know, we would say, "Do you want to try this section?" To try to keep people writing just a small section instead, of, because if you write too much, you become wedded <laughs> to what it is you're doing, and then you show it to the other person, and they you know, and you know, he would write, rewrite me, I would rewrite him, and we just sort of go forward from that. Our editor wanted us to have a voice. I mean, sometimes when people do collaborations, one person will do a chapter and the other person will do the other chapter. We didn't, we didn't really want to do that. We wanted a, a, a voice. So it's a work that has, you know, all of the sentences have been mixed up. Half of a sentence might be his, the other half mine. And we sort of came to an end, you know, towards the end, an understanding about how the book was supposed to sound. Um, so well, we worked in that way. Gordon Wood says he can tell when I'm writing and when you're, when you're writing, but he's wrong. No, he's wrong. I, and I think he probably is probably going, he, I, I would bet he's thinking about subject matter. Yeah. What, what's more likely the thing that I would be doing and the thing that he would, that Peter would be doing, but we were all of the math with that. Um, so I, I don't think he, I think he might be surprised if we pointed to, you know, when he tells us what he is that he thinks that you wrote and I wrote, he might be surprised to find out that he's wrong about that. We also have a couple of questions about uh, religious influences, uh, since we're talking about religion. One asks about uh, the, the use of the phrase, the beacons of the world, the, the vision of America is the beacons of the world, and how much that connects to the Puritan idea of the city on the hill. And there's another question asking about uh, how much, th what the role of deism is in Jefferson's ideas about government. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I could take the second. I, I don't think that Jefferson, well, I could do both of them. I, I don't, Jefferson was not the city, well, I'll, I'll leave the city on the hill to Peter because he's from New England. Well, uh, it didn't, the deism, it, it that, that sermon wasn't known until the 19th I know, it wasn't known until this time. He didn't know that, but I, I, I thought he meant maybe the concept uh, of the idea of it. Um, he wouldn't have known that part of it. Um, the deism, he, he's often described as a deist because he believed in a God that put things in order. Uh, but, and then apparently Diaz did not believe that God intervened, but sometimes he sort of indicated that he thought that God did intervene. So he's yeah, kind of, yeah. he's a deist, but he had his moments. And I don't know whether it's the kind of you know, people praying in a foxhole business or what, but uh, he's he does invoke or think that God could intervene in certain areas. What do you think, Peter? So he's a deist, but there's yeah. a deist with a twist or whatever? Uh. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, but deism, we tend to think of it now uh, critically as uh, uh, as the arrogance of man putting himself in the place of God because we think we know it all. 
And that idea of us knowing it all now is much more plausible than it was then. We don't, incidentally, just in case you're wondering. Uh, but for somebody like Jefferson, who's an advocate of what he would have called natural religion, uh, that is, God's will and work must be known through his creation, and it must be lawful. Uh, that, that's not based on empirical observation. Uh, that, that's, that's a faith. Uh, he has a, a faith in not that you could fully know and master the world, but that you could act in conformance with it. The genius of Republican government is that it comes closer to human nature and therefore the role of humanity in nature uh, than any form of government which is based on, on divine right or some kind of watered down version of divine right. Uh, mm -hmm. I think deism is really central, or what we now call deism, is really central to that worldview. Uh, but it's a worldview that's full of, of awe and wonder. Uh, mm -hmm. There are things that Jefferson doesn't understand, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe it could be understood one day. Why are there fossils in the uh, high Andes, <laughs> for instance? What are they doing there? Yeah. Couldn't be the flood. He did some calculations. It doesn't work. <laughs> so... Uh, He's a man What's of the reason. use of grief. Yeah, he's yeah. a man of reason. Yeah. So uh, another question uh, asks, um, this questioner is interested in your opinions on characterizations of Jefferson as a man with overly high expectations of the people around him. Uh, she mentions, uh, she's heard this discussed regarding his daughters, his grandchildren, as well as mm. claims that he basically worked his protégés to death like Meriwether. Lewis and Francis Walker Gilmer in creating the University of Virginia. Uh, and the question is, would you say that Jefferson had unrealistic expectations for both his family and his friends? Well, that's one that always used to get my students upset back in the old days when I used to teach uh, in his letters to uh, Patsy, to his daughter, uh, which are essentially uh, the um, anti-Mr. Rogers approach, which is, uh, I don't love you just because you exist. Uh, justify my love for you. Uh, I, I think the best answer to that is, uh, yeah, he had high expectations. He was also deeply anxious uh, about whether they would be fulfilled, and that includes everybody in his world. He can't control everything he'd love to. He's the patriarch who imagines that he's uh, in, in control of everything. Um, but um, his, uh, and Annette knows a lot more than I do, could speak more eloquently about it. Uh, the love that his daughters feel for him and his grandchildren feel for him is uh, extraordinary. And it came out of just that kind of engagement. It's not the letters that we read out of context would lead you to think that he's a manipulative, was the word that comes to mind, that he's a sort of a monster trying to create these people in his own image. Uh, and you could say that he did pray that there would be uh, a spread of the enlightenment and that others would be like him in their engagement with the world. Um, yeah. But of course... Yeah, no, I, I would say he had high expectations for himself and people who do that very often transfer that to other other people. The daughter's letters, Peter's right. I mean, I think if you take them out of context, sometimes he does sound monstrous. I think we're, we're talking about the letters that he's writing to Patsy uh, when he's in you know various places, Philadelphia, Germantown, whatever, as the, as the capital is moving around and she's there with in, in a boarding house, uh, he's giving instructions, or even when he's in Paris, instructions about things to do, the way to do various things. And, and it just sounds to me like a person who has lost his wife and has young daughters, and he doesn't really know how to talk to them. I mean, I would imagine his wife had been the one, you know, who was the primary caretaker of the kids, the, the primary, you know, person in their lives. And he may have just come in, you know, as dad, right. his dad do. But then he's left to take care of them and he doesn't know what to say. By the time he gets granddaughters, the letters are very different. 
-hmm. I mean, he still has ex exacting standards for them, but he knows how to talk to young people in a way that he didn't um, at, at the time. Um, but he does have high standards for his protégés and people like that. And he had high standards for himself. I mean, a person who kept to the schedule that he kept and, you know, writing everything down, taking the temperature, doing all kinds of amazing amount wind charts, uh, you know, charts that show the strength of the wind. I mean, there's a lot going on there um, that I think, you know, if he suggested other people did a fraction of it would be kind of crazy, actually. But I do think he sort of eased up on the, the young people um, as he got to be older. I've always been uh, struck by the story of um, when President Kennedy had a dinner for living American Nobel Prize winners and the remark, I'm going to paraphrase, uh, that he made at that dinner that there is more brain power gathered in this room than at any time in the history of mankind except when Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Um, mm -hmm. That's always, I've always found that fascinating. So my question is, uh, which of the 20th century presidents do you feel has been most influenced by Jefferson? Or are there were several? Well, the one who worshiped him the most was FDR. Yeah. FDR was the one who built the memorial. I mean, strangely enough, Mr. Big Government um, uh, loved Jefferson. He had his vacation home at Kenwood, which is was part of Jefferson's estate um, down in Virginia, in, in Charlottesville. He liked Jefferson's identification with the people. Obviously, Roosevelt, that was, that was his big thing um, against uh, the moneyed interest. I mean, in some ways he was seen as a class trader in the same way that Jefferson Similar. Yeah. among some people was seen as a class trader. So I would say FDR, he's the one who put him on the nickel, which is not worth much now, but it was a big deal <laughs> then. And, um, the, and the, you know, as I said, the, uh, the Jefferson monument. So FDR probably uh, would be the person I would pick. What about you, Peter? Yeah, I think I think there's no question about that, and and the, even the point on big government, if you if you take that notion of every generation having to reinvent America, uh, and this is FDR identifying with the challenge of the day, uh, Jefferson did not hesitate to exercise tremendous executive power beyond the bounds of the Constitution, when the moment required it, uh, and uh, Jefferson in. Uh, when he talked about property and distribution, uh, does acknowledge that there's nothing sacred about property. Uh, the only reason you don't have to redistribute it in 18th century, early 19th century America is it's so already so broadly distributed. There's so much out there. Mm -hmm. uh, but Jefferson did have a sense of the public good and the larger welfare and the uses of the state to promote that good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't think uh, FDR was twisting that legacy. I think it was yeah. a, a heartfelt and honest uh, effort to adapt uh, the teachings of, of the first great American nationalist to uh, the moment of crisis in the Depression. When he was in Paris, of course, he writes to, uh, you no, know, he talks about um, another, just quickly about FDR. Jefferson talks about redistribution of wealth that after a certain point, people who made enough a certain amount of money should be taxed more than people who you know made less money and people who made a below a certain point shouldn't be taxed at all so that's a you know if roosevelt saw that letter he would have understood that that's sort of in line with his own philosophy as well another questioner asked about uh, martha jefferson who seemed to have a, a unique and special bond with the hemings and uh this questioner asked did jefferson's daughters have the same relationships with the hemings um, um, they had a special relationship with the Hemings because some of the Hemings people were her siblings, half siblings. They had the same father. Uh, Jefferson's daughters had female members of the Hemings family as their la as ladies' maids or companions when they were children. Uh, Sally Hemings accompanied Jefferson's daughter um, Mary, uh, called Polly, and then Mariah, all these different names, uh, to France. So they did have a close relationship with 
the Hemings family, Jeff, I mean, Jefferson's wife and his, and her, his daughters with his wife were connected to them that way. And one final question from our viewers. Um, this is a personal question asking if either or both of you collect $2 bills. <laughs> no. You know, no, you know, my mother, for, for some reason, when they came out, she bought, she got me she about five of them and they're stamped specially and everything. So but that's the only way of collection that I ever did. You know, and, and it came from my mother. I don't know why she bought them for me, but she did. Well, it's an early influence. Early. <laughs> that's great. Well, thank you so much, Annette Gordon-Reed and Peter Ono for such a wonderful conversation. Uh, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. Um, if you would like to view some of our previous episodes or learn more about the National Humanities Center mission or our programs, please go to nationalhumanitycenter.org. I'm Robert Newman. Thank you so much. Be safe and be well. Good night. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Discovery and Inspiration. If you would like to view the original video recording of this or other humanities-related events, you can find them on the National Humanities Center's channel on YouTube. You can also find episodes of Discovery and Inspiration on SoundCloud or by visiting us at nationalhumanitiescenter.org.